Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 50. The Screwtape Letters, Letter 25, Fashion. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. And this is my first episode with Matt since we had the virtual C.S. Lewis home tour. And that's not even the best way to describe this episode. This is the first episode since January that David and I have recorded. It's March 22nd right now. Dang. Uh, because it was it was pre-skiing my ski trip, which was Feb 1st. And I haven't recorded it. I've actually only recorded once since then. It was with Andrew. But speaking of the kiln tours, it was absolutely beautiful. I, it was such a blessing to be able to do that. We hope we had 60, 55, 60 of our mm-hmm. Patreon supporters on it. We did a Google Meet afterwards. So much fun. I'm going to be terrible at planning these, but I'll probably throw out if there's ever a weekend where I'm not doing anything, just like, hey, guys, whoever's around, you want to Google Meet? Because the conversation was so fulfilling. Edifying is the better word to put. And it was just wonderful. And Ty, the guide, um, uh, he emailed me afterwards and I emailed him a little bit and just a great guy. And so I'm hoping to get to do it in person. He invited me to drink a few pints and smoke some good tobacco in the garden of Lewis's house if I can get there in end of July. (laughs) Wonderful stuff. Yeah, I I really liked the the chatting together afterwards. And I I think that's a good idea to have a, a happy hour every month or two where we all just get together and catch up. And I love that they praised my um, flying by the seat of my pants personality on here. <laughs> David was David like turned this video off, so I assumed he wasn't there anymore for a bit and had to do something. And and they were saying this. I'm like, oh, I hope David's hearing this, so it justifies my lack of preparation for these episodes. But I was listening, and I corrected everybody. <laughs> this this side of Matt does not need to be encouraged. <laughs> uh, we actually also had a few people reach out after the tour. Uh, a you know, a week or two afterwards, asking whether or not it was recorded. I'm afraid we weren't allowed to do that, uh, but I'm in contact with the C.S. Lewis Foundation to find out when the next tour is going to be. So we'll let you know as soon as we know. Yeah, this would be a fun thing for us to do maybe every six or 12 months for new supporters. That could work. Now, speaking of supporters, uh, one of the kickbacks for our top tier supporters is to jump on a video call with the two of us. And you and I have had quite a few of them recently. And they have all, the last um, few have been incredible. One of the gentlemen said my name, which of course is, well, he was a gift from God. Let's just say that. <laughs> and uh gift from Yahweh. But every, I will say this, listeners, it's kind of funny. And I, I make this joke, but I actually mean it half seriously. I tell David afterwards, and actually the uh, the people that we've talked to recently, they don't know this. I call David right after and I go, wow, we need to start doing a listener or a supporter segment where we bring some of our supporters slash listeners on because they were so bright. I, I mean, I am amazed. They're, they're all brighter than me. It's not even funny. And just David and them are going back and forth talking. I'm just kind of looking, nodding my head with my mouth open like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's a little embarrassing sometimes. No, they have been fantastic, Uh, really knowledgeable. We've gone back and forth about the early church fathers, all different parts of Lewis's corpus. Yeah, just wonderful. The last one, um, the Brit. Oof, he was great. (laughs) Well, naturally, 
all British people are. <laughs> yeah, that's David's got the nice thing is David's got a few backup people if this doesn't work out between him and I now. Yeah, you think that that would cause Matt to, you know, be a bit more prompt or diligent. Nah, nah, not at all. <laughs> you know what though is funny? Um, I don't know if I should say this, but I, I doubt Alistair McGrath listens to our podcast, but he's starting one. And it is funny, that gets me and my competitive spirits in. So he's starting a C.S. Lewis podcast, which genuinely is a blessing, guys. We're very excited, more the merrier. But I'd be lying if 10 to 20% of me didn't fail the Lewis litmus test of pride, of wishing the best of another person. And I was like, all right, time to bunker down and to, to armor up and let's go. Because he called it, he called it the C.S. Lewis podcast, which is our tagline. <laughs> yes, and, and we 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 thought we were being very brave when we chose that. He he took that to the I next know. level. He did. And, and for those with a more charitable spirit, uh, I believe his podcast is being launched on March 29th, and I'm sure it's going to be wonderful. And we've invited him onto this show, uh, so you might see him on here at some point uh, advertising it. But before we finish. Wrapping up the section, talking about all of the video chats we've done recently, one of the guys who spoke to, he said that while he appreciated the increased output that we had during the pandemic, he said that our volume was also a little bit intimidating, that the number of episodes we were putting out each week. And so I thought it would be a good moment to point out two things. Firstly, the number of episodes that's going to be released each month next season in season five, it's probably going to go down to two after hours episodes a month. On top of the four regular, just so they they realize that. <laughs> yeah, we'll still have regular Tuesday episodes working through whatever book we're discussing in season five. Uh, but we'll only, only probably have two after hours episodes a month. And I was also polling our supporters on the Slack channel. And it seems to be that when we do dedicated months, like the Tolkien month or the upcoming Barfield month, uh, we'll probably do them in contiguous blocks. So next season, we'll probably have an introductory episode to the season and then just have a block of episodes for apologetics month and then we'll start whatever book we're, we're reading and then we'll probably do the same thing between finishing that book and starting the Narnian book and probably have another dedicated block at the end of the season I'm looking forward to apologetics month by the way oh I've got so many great people coming on it's going to be fantastic mm. <laughs> uh, but the other thing I wanted to say is also just consume whatever episodes suit you. Don't feel guilty if you download one of our episodes and go, eh, I don't really care about this after hours, and you delete it. That's fine. You've already downloaded it. Our stats look great. You've done your part. <laughs> I will say, though, David, and this is a affirmation to yourself, the, the people that you get on the show are pretty stellar, actually. I'm kind of amazed this season. I've been like, whoa. And so I which this shouldn't be saying much to be honest, but it is. I don't listen to podcasts routinely. I will never miss an after hours that I have not been on. I look forward to listening to them. And I'm like, yeah, oh, this is great. <laughs> That's very sweet of you. Uh, before we jump to our standard episode sections, I have a few other pieces of news. Firstly, we've now seen the cover of Paddy Callahan's new book, Once Upon a Wardrobe. And the book oh, itself so is going to be released in October. Also, uh, Gina D'Alfonso, she appeared on our YouTube channel sometime last year to talk about her book, Dorothy and Jack, which talks about the relationship between C.S. Lewis and Dorothy L. Sayers. I just found out that it's currently being converted into an audiobook and should be released sometime in May. 
So it's going to be like the journalist that you had on that didn't know her book got converted to an audiobook. <laughs> Uh, no, she actually she the, the author knows about this one. I, I've checked. Okay, see, uh, I do listen to him. Well done, Matthew. <laughs> and speaking of audiobooks, Lena Maslow, who we also had on an after hours episode talking about her illustrated children's book through the wardrobe, that's also being converted to an to an audiobook. Mm. And before we go to song of the week, we also have to say that Pints with Jack co-host Andrew Lazo recently gave a talk to the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society. His talk was called Sehnsucht as Signpost, the autobiographical impulse of C.S. Lewis. And as you can expect, there'll be a link in the show notes. Honestly, listeners know that I gave that talk at the Edith Stein conference last year, and I was invited back, and I can't do it. I'm gone on a trip that weekend. But if you can't, David, just see if Andrew wants to. Okay. He'd be a good one as well. Indeed. Because I, I, just hearing him, I think he could talk about longing or some... Something like that, because it talks about death and rebirth and how long it can guide you towards that. He'd be really good. Uh, he'll just spend all his time talking about till we have faces. <laughs> I'm going to introduce people to other books. That's why you need to say yes. <laughs> it's decided. Well, let's get on with the song of the week. And we had so many options this week, uh, because in today's letter, Screwtape is teaching his nephew about how to inculcate in the patient uh, a fear of the same old thing and to love novelty and fashions. And we had a bunch of suggestions from our listener and resident maestro, John Marr. He suggested two songs from the Alan Parsons Project, Day After Day and Time. He also suggested Fashion by David Bowie, Seasons of Man by Yes, and he even recommended The Four Seasons by Vivaldi. And John commented that a lot of people are familiar with the first movement, Spring, uh, because it's used in lots of bad films by people who hire lazy music supervisors. Uh, I also came up with some suggestions. Uh, a fun little song that I don't think too many people know. It's called The Same Old Thing by Eric Hutchinson. And I even came up with a Taylor Swift option. <laughs> Change. You're very welcome. I you. love that song. You know, that was one of my favorite songs of hers years ago. And that just goes to show I don't list, read the notes ahead of time because I did not see that in there. Why did you choose that one, David? Because I don't like Taylor Swift. It's just that simple. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh. No. After much consideration, I decided that the song of the week should be Fashion by Lady Gaga. And if you're not familiar with it, here are some of the lyrics. You've got company. Make sure you look your best. Make up on your face a new designer dress. There's a life on Mars where the couture's beyond, beyond. Married to the stars. I own the world. We own the world. And it beat out David Bowie's song of the same name purely because it had a reference to Malacandra. Life on Mars. Because that's the kind of nerd that I am. But you don't choose Taylor Swift change. Nope. Nope. I think the lyrics would have lined up better. If I blind showed you the lyrics of both without you knowing who wrote it, you would have chosen change. Okay, I'm going to give you the option of changing my mind in the next 10 seconds. Tell me a few of the lyrics and tell me why they're better. I don't know any of the lyrics, to be honest. <laughs> I was bluffing every bit of that. <laughs> That's like the time I was at this restaurant. That was a nice restaurant. My grandparents and the waiter goes, uh, oh, where are you from? Holland. Oh, Holland. I love Holland, Michigan. Oh, it's so beautiful there. And I was like, oh, yeah. When were you there? Oh, a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. What'd you do? I'm going to be honest. I just say that to connect. I was never there. He goes, no one ever pushes me though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It always sucks when somebody calls you out. 
Yep. On to the quote of the week, because the longer we take, the longer I wait for my special drink that I'm about to announce. So the quote of the week is, the horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart. An endless source of heresies in religion, folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage, inconstancy in friendship. And I like the parts that you underline in the quote, and I will talk about that in the episode. Heresy, folly, infidelity, inconstancy in friendship. Like Those are real things that we struggle with in life, and it's really due to this principle, the same old thing as we'll unpack. So I, I like the conciseness of that quote. But what we're all waiting for is the drink of the week, which Matt has been gifted a bottle of Macallan 18. Not 12. Yes, 18. Let me just start with the uh, the notes, guys. The the color, deep, deep caramel brown. Usually you hear amber or gold is like the depth. No, this is the most brown I have ever had. On the nose, oh, you absolutely get the sherry sweetness. And creme brulee is a fantastic way to describe this. I mean, it's like a alcoholic creme brulee, of course, but it's there. There's just such a subtle burn, David. And I'm not making this up because it's McAllen 18. I actually also have a bottle of McAllen 12, so I had them side by side and tasted them. It, it's just, it's the first time I've ever had a, a scotch where there's no harsh burn. Of course, there's a subtle warmth, but you actually would use the word warmth. It's good. I should expect it would be good. It's incredibly what? expensive. I, you know, yes. it also doesn't have a burn. If you, if you take like a big pile of $50 bills get some ice and just blend it together and just drink that. <laughs> I will probably have this for the next year, year and a half. The drinks are going to be saved for special episodes. So if I uh, do an after hours with someone that I'm really excited for, or maybe the season finale, and then it's actually going to be used for like work celebrations of milestones hit. I mean, I'm not going to drink this often. And if you're a friend of Matt's and go around his place, hopefully you've listened to this episode. And so you'll know that he's hiding the good stuff from you at the back of the cabinet you know what i am one of my spiritual charisms when i took the test was like generosity it's just i i if, if someone comes over if there's a listener here i'd absolutely just pour a glass it would be it wouldn't even cross my mind david if you were here with marie i'd pour two glasses just like that i find fellowship and friendship much more important than saving a bottle of something i like to enhance experience so if you guys want to come fly here it's good to know that you would treat me as kindly as a complete stranger <laughs> I'll give you two glasses. <laughs> Today, I'm drinking the far cheaper bullet bourbon with a couple of drops of water. Uh, mm. Who are we toasting? We're toasting again, one of our gold level supporters. And Kimberly K. Sometimes I don't like to do last name. I don't know. And not anonymity. But <laughs> I never can say that. I've only had one sip. This stuff must be strong. <laughs> Kimberly K. Your presence on the Pints with Jack Slacker community has been a blessing, and I mean that. So we raise our glasses to good health to you and all of those close to you. Cheers. Cheers. Guys, sorry that was like five minutes longer introduction. That's what happens when Matt doesn't record with David for three months. There's just so much to talk about. And also when you have your, your fancy scotch. Yes. If you spent that much money on a bottle, you got to make sure that people know that it's delicious. <laughs> I will share it with you if you come here. I'll hold you to that. I'm going to be in San Diego end of May, by the way. Oh, that's good to know. Okay, we can hang out. Awesome. Anyway, 
Answer Letter 25, which was published in The Guardian on October 17th, 1941. Here's my 100-word summary. Screwtape complains about the patient's mere Christianity, wanting him to attach some fashion to his faith and ultimately supplant it. Screwtape plans to do this by fostering a horror of the same old thing. God has made humans to enjoy both change and permanence. Screwtape wants the desire for change to become so twisted that the patient demands absolute novelty. Something which is costly, diminishes enjoyment, promotes illicit pleasures, and fosters both greed and misery. Demands for novel thinking are crucial for hell to distract humans from the real dangers of their time and to keep their thinking muddled. You know, we'll get into this. There's the big picture stuff, and it applies to philosophy and politics, as listeners will hear us get to as Lewis brings it to in the end. But that part on the novelty and then novelty costing is something I can fall prey to. Yeah, can you imagine somebody spending a fortune on uh, on a, anything above a Macallan 12? <laughs> it was a gift, and I drink my doer's white label typically. But I'm going to enjoy every moment of it. Don't guilt me, David. I don't need no Catholic guilt right now. <laughs> I'm trying to enjoy this nice scotch. Yeah, just doing my best to ruin it for you. Okay, so... In today's letter, Screwtape, he kicks things off by identifying something which really bothers him about the group into which the patient's girlfriend has introduced him. He describes them as mere Christians. And we spoke about this back in season one when we worked our way through Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. But the phrase mere Christianity, it comes from the 17th century English Puritan Richard Baxter. And he wrote it in his book, The Saints Everlasting Rest. And we could definitely go down a rabbit trail as to what he means by that and what Lewis means by that. But just as a quick recap, mere Christianity isn't a replacement denomination. Lewis described it as a hallway of a house uh, into which everybody should enter. And he encouraged everyone to pass from the hallway and find a home in one of the rooms and not chosen for purely superficial reasons. And the thing I'd add is obviously there's a connection and a nod to his book, Mere Christianity. But I, I think there's also just another statement being made here of like boring Christianity, but in a good sense of the word, like it's the, the not sexy part of it, but the part that's so important because so often, as we've seen this chapter, we want sexy new this, but it's like the core teachings, Christ dies, he rose from the dead, righteousness, uh, mercy, grace, like let's just get to the stuff that honestly isn't going to be some great charismatic orator, but it's the truth of life. And if you call, when I interviewed Dr. Jason Lapuyavi, he said that the sexiest thing is the most real thing. Mm-hmm. And so if mere Christianity refers to the true reality, well, then that's going to be sexy in and of itself. I like that. Now, Screwtape outlines what they want instead of this mere Christianity. He writes, What we want, if men are to become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. You know... Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and spelling reform. They must be Christians. Let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. The thing I thought of was Christianity and social justice. I remember being in college, that being something thrown around all the time because we have a bleeding heart in college and it's like we want to make an impact and do social justice. But Christianity was used as an ends rather than a 
No, it was a means to an end towards social justice. And the end was social justice. There's nothing wrong with social justice. But it's like that was the primary thing, not the truth of Christianity. Scudape says that this should be achieved by inculcating the patient a horror of the same old thing. As you quoted in today's quote of the week, this horror of the same old thing, he says it's one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart, an endless source of heresies in religion, folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage, and inconstancy in friendship. And you mentioned all of the things that I underlined, heresies, folly, infidelity, inconstancy. Why do you think that the horror of the same old thing leads to all of these things? It's kind of what it says. We get bored with the current. We always need change. And we'll talk about that, so I won't get ahead of ourselves here, but why being creatures of time changes something that we crave and desire. And if it's not rooted with permanence, you're constantly changing. And so I think it goes back to, remember Mere Christianity when he talked about both in this context of marriage, but in life where let's say you're a pilot and the first couple of years of being a pilot is awesome and fun. But then you have to kind of die to that because you're going to have the same old thing for 20 years and you find new beauties and pleasures. And so if you're, if you don't do that process of dying to the call it honeymoon stage of any activity or pleasure or relationship, you're going to find that it gets boring based on what criteria you're applying to it. And you need to jump to something else. So a new type of religion, a new woman, and for infidelity, a new friendship. Yeah, yeah. If you want novelty, it's going to necessarily drive you towards heresy and religion. And the person that mm-hmm. I thought of was the Episcopal ghost from The Great Divorce. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be clever, daring, new. Orthodoxy and received religion is, is boring and dull. Stagnant is the word that he uses. If Jesus had lived long enough, he'd even have changed his views. Yeah. And I also think that it's going to mess up your relationships because you're going to give bad advice because you want to stay away from the tried and tested true wisdom. You want to try something a little bit different. And that's Mm -hmm. just going to breed affairs and just turbulent friendships. Yes. And Screwtape goes on to explain why the horror of the same old thing is even possible. He explains that humans live in time and things change over time. And because change is inevitable... God, whom, once again, he accuses of being a hedonist, being just all about pleasure, he has made change pleasurable. But that change isn't the only thing in our lives. And because of this, God has made not only change pleasurable, but permanence. And he says that God is even worse than that because he's provided a way of fulfilling both of these loves, both of change and of permanence. He says in the very world he has made, uh, there's a union of change and permanence, which, which we call rhythm. And he gives two wonderful examples, one in nature and then one in the church. So in nature, he says, we have the seasons, winter, spring, summer. They change, but they're in a cycle. So there's a sense of permanence. Do you know what those are down in San Diego, David? Uh, It's all summer. Sunny in 75. That's how we live. (laughs) Uh, And the other example he gives is in church life in the liturgical year. Once again, you have Christmas, you have Lent, you have Easter. You alternate between fasting and feasting. So you not only have change, but this cycles means that you also have some level of permanence. The, the rhythm, as Screwtape describes it, allows for both change and constancy. It's, it's genius. It just made me think of that vision, image is a better word, of the guardrails. Of Is it Lewis writing Amir Christianity or is it Chesterton? But Chesterton and Orthodoxy. There we go. Good. You know exactly where I was going with that. See, we're like an old married couple. 
Yeah, Chesterton with the children on top of a, a mountain playing soccer. And if they don't have guardrails around it, they won't know where to go. Christianity and God is what I'm saying, has embedded so much in life, the guardrails. If we're only open to seeing them and understanding them and surrendering to his truth, go this far, but not too far. Embrace change. Change is a part of life, but don't make it a means, don't make it an end in itself. And that very nicely leads into the next section because so far, Screwtape has explained the goal to get the patient to attach some fashion to his Christianity and ultimately replace it. And he's explained why it's possible that God made both change and permanence pleasurable. And so Screwtape wants to explain how they're going to exploit this. In Chestertonian terms, how they're going to bust the patient past the, the, the protective fence. Screwtape writes, Now, just as we pick out and exaggerate the pleasure of eating to produce gluttony, so we pick out this natural pleasantness of change and twist it to demand absolute novelty. And rather interestingly, Screwtape says that if the demons don't do this, humans will just love the mixed novelty and familiarity of snowdrops this January, sunrise this morning, plum pudding this Christmas. And he says that children, until we've taught them better, they'll be perfectly happy with a seasonal round of games in which conkers succeed hopscotch as regularly as autumn follows summer. And as I was reading this, I wondered, Matt, did you play either of those games when you were in school? Hopscotch or Conkers? I've never heard of Conkers, but Hopscotch, absolutely. I was a big chalk person just in general, by the way. So you'd always draw the Hopscotch with chalk. <laughs> oh, that's a great tagline. Matt Bush. I'm a big chalk person. <laughs> <laughs> well, Conkers is a game that I played growing up. And it uses the seeds of horse chestnut seeds. So they're quite, they're quite big and hard. And what you do is you uh, poke a hole through it, thread a piece of string through it, and then tie a knot so that you can hang up the seed on this piece of string. And then you take it in turns with a friend to keep hitting the other's conker until one of them breaks. Oh, so like throwing it and it's... Yeah, you, you, you flick it. You flick it and, it and it and it spins and you crack into the other conquer and eventually one of them will hmm. give out. It reminds me of the game. It's not exactly like that, but it's a string hanging with a little circle thing, mm -hmm. um, like a washer. Okay. And you throw it and it will just barely, if you do it perfectly, it can land on a nail. Uh -huh. But it's incredibly hard with the swing and you also have to get the right speed so that it kind of goes up and falls on the nail. Oh, it's so much fun. Think same motion, but with much more carnage. And that's why I greatly preferred Conkers to Hopscotch. It was far more violent. What you would do, it, you when, you, when you were a, a proficient player, what you would say to somebody who had a really good Conker is you say, Stampsies or no Stampsies? So basically, if somebody drops their Conker, are you allowed to stamp on it with your foot? And as long as they agree to Stampsies, what you would then do is swing your Conker to hit their hand. They would yelp with pain, drop their Conker, and then you stomped it into oblivion. Oh my goodness, David. I had a very violent you childhood. Teach your kids this? <laughs> yeah. We all see on Instagram the picture of him with a lion and think he's adorable, but this is the real David as a child. Yep. Very violent. <laughs> but I don't I want to underscore Luke Screwtape's point here. He says that whereas love of some change is natural, for this constant infinite novelty to be desired, that's the work of demons. And I think to some degree this is going to be a bit of a general statement, and I don't mean it to be universal, but I have to imagine the part of change that we are created or endowed from God to enjoy 
is meant to be for the stuff that comes our way that's out of our control. So we, so we can be responsive to it and reactive to it. I doubt it was meant to be so that we can constantly seek out change. Hmm. I guess would be a principle I would somewhat apply. Of course, there's circumstances where you need to make a change because things are just bad. That's why I got to be careful with how I do this. But I think overall, we go through life and you just recognize there's lots of change that just happens that's completely out of your control. And God has thankfully given us the natural disposition and endowed us with that to be able to handle it. I mean, humans are super resilient. I'm amazed at even circumstances I get really nervous about going forward. I even think about this with kids. It's like, oh man, it's going to be exhausting wanting a big family, three, four, five, six kids, whatever you get. Um, and I'm like, oh, can I handle that? I go, you know what? Anything that eventually comes, I can ultimately end up handling. Of course, there's an adjustment period, but you embrace the change. I want to see a video of you looking after six kids. I think that'd be kind of hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> My introverted side is scared out of his mind. <laughs> so Screwtape has basically made his case at this point, but he then outlines the advantages to fostering this desire for novelty in the patient. And he gives three main reasons. In the first place, it diminishes pleasure while increasing desire. The pleasure of novelty is by its very nature more subject than any other to the law of diminishing returns. In, we cannot stress this enough. The, the most practical example for men and women listening to this, but I remember learning this in high school and as time goes on, but from sexual temptation and sin. Of course, the worst expression would be infidelity, but they've done studies on rats. I remember reading where the first time a rat would mate with another rat, it would like the spike in the chemical response would be really high. But after 20 times with the same rat, it would diminish. And then it would need to go to other ones to get that same spike. But then after it would do it too many times, the spike would become less and less because it would like need more and more and more change just to maintain the baseline of excitement. And it was giving. I remember just that principle being a wake-up call, a scary one, of just how important it is to have self-awareness towards that with anything. Money, that's a more practical one. People need new cars, new houses, new clothes. And as we'll see in the next point here, that leads to an excessive amount of cost. And that leads to marital problems, spend too much money on clothes and different things. And before you know it, you have financial troubles and you have marital problems. It's like, this point is the chapter right here, <laughs> in my opinion. It's just such an important principle. Absolutely. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking of pornography. So the first one, this yes. law of diminishing returns. The more you consume, the less it actually gives back to you. And it also leads into the second point, demands for novelty, inevitably costs money. And this fosters greed, unhappiness, or both. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he also says, thirdly, demands for novelty means that you quickly use up innocent sources of pleasure, which means that you'd now move on to illicit ones. So diminishing returns, increased costs, moving further and further away from God's given design. And using your example of lust and pornography, let's start... Start simple. Maybe you're struggling with um, masturbation, then you go to pornography, then before you know it, and you're still in your heart thinking there's some innocence here because it's just you and you can figure this out. Before you know it, you get to deeper, darker types of it. And then before you know it, it turns into, let's say you're married into an affair. Like, know that this connects to Lewis's heavenly and hellish creature thing. It's, it's a slippery slope. And I cannot stress that enough. As someone who's cycled through different things 
in lustful temptations, but other ones as well. I've seen myself slip down a path, but I've seen myself come out of it in the top two. And I realize how important it is to be super vigilant at the earliest stages. And you you want to have grace for yourself when you screw up in a certain way, but you have to realize grace does not mean like cheap grace. There's, there's got to be like a cost and a consequence still in your head. Scrooge points out that all this kind of thinking, this uh, fear of this, the same old thing, it's actually meant that artists have constantly tried to push the limits of their art. And this has ultimately hindered the ability for art to be used by Christianity. And I'd say the examples of this are just legion. You, 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 you see that art very often these days, it's not about producing something beautiful. It's about producing something new, and in particular, that's even more shocking than anything else you've seen before. That's the currency that it tends to trade in. And the hilarious thing is it becomes really ho-hum after a while. The person I think of in particular is Madonna. Not the mother of God, but the, the pop singer. She, is, she has built a career out of trying to be shocking, and her recent attempts have just been kind of boring. It's like, oh, Madonna, you've been going after the, the church and Christians again. <gasps> Shocker. <laughs> I was thinking of, uh, you know, we got to be careful. I don't like to point for things, people out and stuff. But I was actually thinking of some of the music videos of like Cardi B mm-hmm. and these oh, music videos in general. But just how, think of five, 10 years ago, what was acceptable in music videos and how now for the sake of art, we've stretched the sexuality of music videos, honestly. In the Grammys performance, particularly, I was like, what? <laughs> this is insane. Yeah, that was basically soft core. <laughs> you know, something yes. and then this is primetime TV and gets praised it for being this great groundbreaking work rather than simple objectification and just and just trying to get some eyeballs on a TV show. Yeah, there's nothing hard about selling sex and objectifying. It's about the easiest least creative way to get views and eyeballs and money. But it has that inherent law of diminishing returns. It's like, well, I've seen all of this before. Show me something new. And oof, I hope we've hit that point where there's nothing new because I don't think I can handle more new than this. Oh, it was just stop watching TV. You'll be fine. <laughs> uh, for that, the third and final advantage, Screwtape says that if they can foster a desire for novelty, then they get to generate fashions and particularly fashions of thought, which is then the next thing that he really unpacks here. He says the use of fashions in thought is to distract the attention of men from their real dangers. We direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is least in danger and fix its approval on the virtue nearest to that vice, which we are trying to make endemic. Lewis wrote this in the 40s. This is so prophetic. (laughs) I've got to ask this section. I read it a few times trying to wrap my head around and I knew what he was saying at a high level, but what do you think would be modern day examples of this? I know there's tons, but... Yeah, I have lots of thoughts about this. But I think it's probably safer if I just say, ask me about it on Slack. <laughs> <laughs> David does not hold back there sometimes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, sometimes. But what Screwtape describes the outworking of this, it's really quite comical. He says that the game is to have them all running around with fire extinguishers whenever there is a flood, or all crowding to that side of the boat, which is already nearly gunlunder. 
and this means the the boat that side of the boat's nearly underwater. The gunwale is the top edge of the boat where weapons were mounted. Hmm. And Screwtape says, thus we make it fashionable to expose the dangers of enthusiasm at the very moment when they are all really becoming worldly and lukewarm. And he explains later on that in emotional ages, they make people fear reason. In lecherous ages, people are on their guard against Puritanism. That's actually one thing I would say that we're definitely living through these days. It is the standard retort to arguing for marriage and monogamy. Oh, that's Puritan. It's, <laughs> our society is in no danger of becoming Puritans. You remember when chastity used to be a virtue? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, now have, it's honestly a vice. Oh, there, secularly, there have been a whole series of articles coming out just decrying the Christian sexual morality. Yep. And he ends that section by saying that when men are really hastening to be slaves or tyrants, we make liberalism—you know, the general ideas of liberty—the prime bogey, the, the the evil spirit, the thing to look out for. Scudip says that the real win is to turn this desire for novelty into a fully fledged philosophy. He says at that point, nonsense in the intellect may reinforce corruption of the will. So our, our wills, what we want, what we desire, that's corrupted. And if you can have this desire for novelty as your philosophy, then that's not going to protect, protect you at all because your intellect is now corrupted. And, and Screwtape comments that the evolutionary model of thought is useful here. He says it's here that the general evolutionary or historical character of modern European thought, partly our work, comes in so useful. I had a few thoughts on this, but what do you think he's getting at? Not a clue. I genuinely, on this section of notes, I have something on the next one, but I've got nothing here. <laughs> this is one where I put, David will have something good. <laughs> well, what I think he was getting at is that the idea of evolution, just generally, is the idea that there is that there is steady change, and that change tends towards perfection or adaptation to an environment. And so... If that's your mindset towards everything that we need to keep altering and changing, well, that really feeds into this idea of desiring novelty because that's what we need. That's the way we will improve in, in evolutionary terms. If we have more mutations, new things will appear and that will allow us to make greater leaps forward. You know, as I, as I reread it and take out the or, because sometimes the ors can confuse you, it is here that the general evolutionary of modern European thought comes in so useful. And what we know is coming up in a second here and a little bit later, I think he's somewhat referring to like evolution of thought, the evolution of our thought and philosophy that need to just constantly be changing. And the future thoughts 10 years from now will be better than today's thoughts and 30 years from now will be better than the other. And the problem with that is you're not asking the right questions. You're just like thought progressing and evolving every year for the sake of it guarantees that Next year's, the future's thought is better than the present thought and definitely better than the past thought. And Lewis had a term for this. It was something that he argued with Owen Barfield and ultimately lost. Chronological snobbery. The idea that oh, the future is always going to be better, that old ideas are bad because they're old ideas. They're out of date. They're out of step. You need newer, modern ideas that will inherently be better because they're new. Screwdape says that God wants us to ask certain questions about our actions. Is it righteous? Is it prudent? Is it possible? But Screwtape wants Wormer to encourage his patient to ask kind of weird questions. Is it in accordance with the general movement of our time? Is it progressive or reactionary? Is this the way history is going? And you see how all of those questions are phrased of moving forward, of novelty. And Screwtape says that 
these questions can't possibly be answered because we can't see the future. We don't know how things are going to be in the future. Although, funnily enough, we do influence the future when we change our present actions. And Screwdate says that while we're preoccupied with these wrong questions, rather than asking, is it righteous? Is it prudent? Is it possible? Asking all about, is this, is this the spirit of the age? Is this the way things are going? While we're preoccupied with those wrong questions, Screwtape says that it's easier to bend our will because we're, we're thinking about the wrong things. And he ends his letter by saying that at one point, humans knew that some change was good, some bad, some neutral. But he says we've, we've, we've largely removed this knowledge. He says they've replaced the word unchanged for the emotionally evocative stagnant. Again, remember the Episcopal ghost in The Great Divorce. And Screwdip says that they've trained people to think of the future as the promised land, which only the favoured heroes attain. And it's not something that we all reach day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour. And I will say this reminds me of two things, particularly this concept of change for the sake of change and thought and philosophy or progress for the sake of progress, probably the better way to put that. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who really argued against this idea that progress has to be going towards something positive for it to be good, not just changing towards a future to be considered good. And he used the example, and I'm going to butcher it, but I think I'll get it close enough, the fence, where a person comes across the fence and goes, oh, there's a fence in the way, we have to remove it. Chesterton argues, well, you should ask yourself, why was the fence put up in the first place before you just decide you should move it? Now, the end result might be it's not right, it's not righteous, it's not prudent, and therefore we should remove it. Fine. But your first thought can't just be, this fence is in my way, let me remove it. It's, it's getting in the way of progress or something. And I really have always loved that analogy because today so much we deconstruct old rules and principles and ways of thinking because... We just think they're outdated. And we don't ask the questions that you said. Is it righteous? Is it prudent? Is it possible? And it's an idea that Lewis absolutely stole from Chesterton. His writings are, are full of this. The, the main quotation that comes to my mind is when he's talking about uh, turning the clock back. He says, well, if the time is wrong, that's a very good thing to do. He also talks about if we've taken a wrong turning, just plowing on isn't, to, isn't the, the progressive thing to do. The progressive thing to do is to go back to where you made the mistake and go in the correct direction. If you've been working out an arithmetic sum and you've made a mistake early on, don't keep pushing on. Go back and fix the error and then move forward. Mm. Well said. Any closing thoughts before we unscrew screw tape? I'm ready to start unscrewing. All right, you go first. Yeah, I only had three. Two do's and a don't. I try to keep these concise now. Do which coincidentally also means less work. <laughs> Do learn to be still or present and not always need change. Simple, straightforward. I know there's nothing sexy about it, but that's the point of this whole chapter. Not everything is sexy. My version of that was do not demand constant novelty. Yes, even, even more concise, bravo. I liked do root yourself in the historical teachings of the church, no matter how unsexy and boring. I think that's something that was a big wake up call to me. I actually, sorry to go on a brief little tangent here, but thankfully we're within time easily here. But that was when I was really exploring my faith and some denominational questions. And I, uh, I was reading dialogue concerning heresies by St. Thomas More in the 16th century. And someone came to him in this, and this is his book, it's a real thing, and says, you know, I read this scripture verse and I think to myself, this is what this means. 
and therefore it changes the teaching of the church. And he literally goes, and this has profoundly impacted me, do you really think in 1,500 years you're the first person to read it this way? And then he counters every part of the point. And I thought to myself, I have that has stuck with me to this day of when I have a new thought, don't squash the new thought, but go back to the historical teachings, research the why, dive into it, and have some humility that our thoughts aren't necessarily new thoughts or good thoughts even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I often like to say, you are not the first person to read that scripture verse. We have 2,000 years of Christians who have read, proclaimed, prayed, copied that verse. Maybe find out what they say about it. And you might find that you're in accord with something that an ancient mind also saw, which is a wonderful idea. I've had it happen a couple of times where I thought I had this profound new insight. And I then did some looking and then found out that St. Augustine copied me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then other times I've had a new idea and I've gone looking and realized, oh, this was a heresy. This was denounced in the fourth century. Okay, I'm going to move on. Mm-hmm. I guess my final one is, do not judge based on the current fashionable trends, but truth itself. So that goes back to, the, is it righteous? Is it prudent? Take truth. Take the template of what we know. Use that as your standard for judgment, not the current times. And I had a similar version of that. I said, do beware of attaching fashions to your faith. Ooh, well said. And the two that I had, which are a little bit different from those that you offered, uh, do embrace rhythm in life, in nature and in spirituality. That's a good one. And lastly, do think clearly about the dangers of the current age. Well said. I guess the one closing thoughts I have is um, switching to McCallum 12 after McCallum 18 really diminishes the taste of McCallum 12. <laughs> See what that demand for novelty you know has done to you? Yes, you are correct. So I have a new don't. <laughs> don't drink McCallum 18 first and then go to McCallum 12. The, the story of the wedding feast of Cana, where you start with the good alcohol and then you switch to the bad alcohol, terrible advice, terrible <laughs> advice, because literally start with the bad alcohol because your taste buds aren't used to the good yet and you'll enjoy the bad stuff and then go to the good stuff and you're going to really enjoy the good stuff. So you get to enjoy them both. Well, here's a thought. It actually does correspond with what we've been speaking about, because what is McAllen 20? It's older. It's deeper. It's further back. It has less novelty to it. Ooh, so I need to go get McAllen 25. I think we've just proved that, yeah. Yeah, I, well, what we proved <laughs> is I need to go find someone insanely wealthy to buy me it. Oh, uh, that was a good episode. And we're still under time. Wow, didn't expect that to happen. No, and we went way over in our pre-introduction stuff. Sorry, guys. No, he's sorry. I thought it was delightful. <laughs> But our call to action, guys, we want to, as we always do, thank our top tier supporters. And this list continues to grow. I'm amazed. We had another $20 a month supporter come in. Jerry, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, Rowdy. And it's many of you we were talking about were some top quality video chat people that could easily replace me. And Gary, I'm really sorry that Matt just called you Jerry. Oh, did I call him Jerry? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I wasn't even paying attention. Too much McAllen. I know, right? That 18, two, two glasses of McAllen and I must be feeling it. <laughs> well, 
as we wrap up, I, I want to end a little bit differently today because a couple of weeks ago in my episode with Taylor Schroll, I referred to Screwtape's assessment of a theologian whom I identified as Reinhold Niebuhr. And as I was listening to that episode, I, I realized that I have a connection with this theologian. He's the author of the prayer that I adopted at my confirmation. And I'm sure all of you have heard of it. It's the Serenity Prayer. Uh, a version of it is associated with Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I thought it might be an idea it, in today's episode for me to just end by reading that prayer. The, it, this is actually a later version of it, and it's a little bit longer. It's absolutely gorgeous. God, grant me the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Amen. And everyone, join us next time. We'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.